Hi there. Welcome to the Food Mood Files. I'm Emily Serta, clinical nutrition specialist and founder of Thrive Inside Nutrition. I witnessed a life-changing connection between food and mood in my own family that drove me to grad school and into practice as a licensed nutritionist. As I've built relationships with clients, health practitioners, and other parents, I've come to realize that equally dramatic food mood experiences are happening every day in homes and at dining tables across the world. If you're interested in learning about the influence of food on mood, or vice versa, then you are in the right place. I am really excited about today's episode about Hashimoto's thyroiditis and its influence on food and mood for a few reasons. First, the topic is fascinating and really important to a number of people. And also because I'm thrilled to introduce everyone to my guest, Sunny Brigham. Sunny is a board certified clinical and integrative nutritionist with a master's in nutrition and integrative health and is a certified nutrition specialist. She helps women reduce fatigue, eliminate bloat and lose weight by focusing on healing the digestive tract and repairing their relationship with food. Full disclosure, Sunny and I went through grad school and clinical supervision together, so we could probably carry on for quite a while. (laughs) But I really wanted Sunny to come on the podcast because she's well-versed in hypothyroid management and putting Hashimoto's into remission, which is where we're going to focus today's episode of the Food Mood Files. Sunny, it's really great to see you. Welcome to the Food Mood Files. Thank you. It's so, um, it's exciting to be here. Um, I'm excited to talk about this topic. I'm very passionate about it. So uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm going to jump. Actually, I want to start right from the beginning. Um, because in the last couple years, I think it's been a couple years, um, you retired after serving 20 years in the US Air Force. Tell me what brought you from the Air Force into nutrition and then bring me up to date on what made you go toward thyroid dysfunction. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting journey because um, what I did in the Air Force has nothing to do with health and wellness. So I was an investigator in the Air Force and I did that for about 20 years, Uh, lived in several different countries, took a couple of all paid expense vacations over to the desert for some time. And um, before I retired, I became really passionate about health and wellness and I got really into making sure that I was as healthy as I could be Um, And that mainly comes from seeing my mother's decline in health. And so she was just the typical American woman in that she was overworked, overstressed, underpaid, and really put everybody else's needs above her own. And I see that so frequently with women today still. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. And so she was a big kind of push Um, whether she knows it or not, for me to get into the health and wellness realm. And then, you know, once I kind of dived in, I was all in. And eventually, uh, someone had said to me, you know, why don't you get a degree in this? You're so you're so passionate about it. Uh, You're so well versed in it. And so I thought, why not? And so I went back to school and got my master's. And then once I retired, I opened my clinical practice to help people. Um, 
since then, I've kind of narrowed down specifically helping Hashimoto's uh, women diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis because it's a disease that's on the rise, quite honestly. You see it frequently and it's really underdiagnosed. A lot of physicians or endocrinologists are not catching this disease when they should. And they also don't really have a lot of nuggets of help or support to those patients that are newly diagnosed with Hashimoto's. They tend to take a, let's look at your antibodies, uh, watch them and see what happens to them approach versus being really proactive about working to put that Hashimoto's back into remission so that you know other secondary or tertiary autoimmune conditions don't show up in those individuals. Yeah, it's something, I mean, it's a condition that shows up so much in clinical practice that, and, and comorbid, like you said, with so many other conditions that um, sometimes it just, it, it pops out and that's not even why a client is coming to see you. They're just like, oh yeah, and I have Hashimoto's. So it's not even the main, the main complaint, right? Um, so let's dive right into the deep end of the pool and what, tell, tell us what is the difference between just hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's? Sure. So hypothyroidism is where your thyroid just isn't functioning the way that it should. Whether that's you're not getting enough of a signal from the pituitary gland to the thyroid to produce enough thyroid stimulating hormone, which is your TSH, you see that in your labs. Um, and TSH tells the thyroid to pump out T4 and T3, which are your primary thyroid hormones. T4 and T3 play a big role in your metabolism in your body. So that's why you might feel intolerance to cold because your metabolism is slowing down, your basal metabolic rate is dropping. You might notice some weight gain. And again, that comes to your metabolism and how your body is breaking down those carbs, fats, and proteins that you're consuming. Um, fatigue is usually the biggest symptom that people complain about with um, hypothyroid or the first symptom that they typically notice off the bat. Um, but hypothyroid is just your thyroid is kind of misfiring. It's not really functioning the way that it's supposed to. Um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis is the autoimmune arm of hypothyroidism. And so autoimmune conditions typically originate in the digestive tract, just basically due to internal and external environmental factors, and then having a predisposition to develop an autoimmune condition through a genetic process. And so what a lot of people don't know is Hashimoto's is a driver for hypothyroidism. So the typical process is that people go in and they might complain of fatigue or dry skin or hair loss to their primary care physician. And so the physician decides to pull some thyroid labs, notice that you're hypothyroid, and then you know maybe put you on some medication. Months, days, years go on and your symptoms really aren't improving. Maybe you get referred to an endocrinologist, but at some point they decide to pull some antibody labs on you to see if you might have Hashimoto's. And lo and behold, you do. But generally what happens is Hashimoto's comes first. Hashimoto's is responsible for 70% of hypothyroid cases. So Hashimoto's comes first and it causes misfiring and malfunctioning in the thyroid. And so if, if physicians or endocrinologists were better about checking those antibody labs first, there's a good chance that by treating the Hashimoto's and repairing it and putting it into remission would save your thyroid 
from becoming, you know, whether uh, you have nodules and you have to get a portion of your thyroid removed or, you know, treating the Hashimoto's first would save your metabolism and how your body functions without having to go through years and years of these annoying symptoms that alter your entire life. And quite frankly, your friends and family just don't get, they don't understand how tired you are or what digestive symptoms you're dealing with. They just say like, oh, she complains a lot and she isn't herself and she never wants to do the things that she used to want to do. Yeah. But it's important to know that Hashimoto's typically comes first. And that's not, that's not common knowledge. That's not something that's out there. So, so the testing is kind of flipped on its head because like you said, people go and they have these low thyroid symptoms and they're tested for hypothyroid and they're put on medication and told to go off. But, you know, are there indications for Hashimoto's that people could, could look at other than fatigue? I mean, is there anything, cause like you said, you serve these women who are overworked, underpaid, you know, they're really burning the candle at both ends. Um, they feel tired and often their doctors will even say, well, of course you feel tired, right? Um, which is a whole other topic, but is there anything that somebody could do or do they just need to advocate for themselves that to learn, to ask about this Hashimoto's? Yeah. So quite honestly, it comes down to self-advocation because the symptoms of Hashimoto's are really similar to the symptoms of hypothyroidism. And those same symptoms are really similar to somebody that might have just general run-of-the-mill food sensitivities or dis disordered gut or disordered digestive tract. And so those symptoms are typically fatigue is a big one, joint pain, muscle aches, um, a tendency to err on the side of constipation, a lot of indigestion or bloat, random diarrhea, a lot of skin issues like dry skin, eczema, hives, itchy skin. Uh, we'll see a lot of excess mucus production. So in the nasal passages or the throat, so chronic throat clearing or feeling like you're just really mucusy sometimes. Um, hair loss is a big one, especially um, loss of the eyebrows as well. So the loss of the outer third of the eyebrows along with the hair loss on your head. Um, dry skin is a really big one. I know I already mentioned that one, but that's I think it's really important to foot stomp that one. Um, weight gain, so really starting to see that it's coming on, especially if you are gaining massive amounts of weight, like upwards of 15 to 20 pounds in a month, that's a good indication that there's something seriously brewing below the surface. Oh, um, that's big. Yeah, usually with hypothyroidism, you will start to gain weight, but it's generally at a much slower rate. You might notice that this month you're really tired, but you've put on maybe two or five pounds. And then the next month that might be another two or five pounds. But with Hashimoto's, it's a significant amount of weight gain in a really short period of time. Wow. Wow. So, so tell me, is this age related or is this more common in certain populations? Because I have to tell you, um, I have a client um, who is near and dear to me who was just put on thyroid medication because she turned 40. There were no tests. There were no, it was just, you turned 40. So now you're going to start taking thyroid medication. Now this was years ago. Um, but <laughs> to me that that's, 
you know, being a, a clinician, that's a little bit crazy. So, so tell me a little bit about, you know, where we expect this and if it's related to age. So it's not necessarily related to age, but you do see it a lot in women that are 40 plus. I've had, um, I've seen women as young as 18 or 19 diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Wow. I've seen children diagnosed with Hashimoto's. So you're talking as young as six or eight years old diagnosed with Hashimoto's. So women typically uh, are at a higher risk or tendency of developing Hashimoto's than men. Although I have seen men with Hashimoto's, it just typically you're going to see more women. I don't think it's necessarily a specific age that puts you more at risk, more so than the overall lifestyle. I had talked about external and internal factors that increase your risk of developing Hashimoto's. And so we have, you have to have a genetic predisposition, which means that you have to carry an autoimmune gene. That autoimmune gene is not specific to Hashimoto's, but you have to carry an autoimmune gene. And then you add in the external and the internal stressors, which then flip that that gene on, they turn it on, it's now active and your body is actively starting to create Hashimoto's inside of itself. Those external factors might be where you live, your location that you live. You might live in a city that has a lot of um, environmental toxins in the air that you might be breathing. Maybe the air quality isn't as good as it, as it could be. Um, it could be that you have a very high stress job. And so this external job is creating some internal stress for you. And maybe you're not so great at stress management. Uh, food has a big player in it as well. Food would be an internal stressor. So consuming foods that our body just doesn't like or doesn't agree with because a good majority of your immune, immune system lies with inside or inside your digestive tract. And so when we consume foods that our body just doesn't like, it'll amount an immune defense against that food. And then that kicks off the inflammatory response. There's one food that typically I see often in Hashimoto's that they have a problem with, and that's gluten. So I want to preface this with, I am not the type of person that just removes gluten willy nilly across the board from anybody. I am not at all on board with restrictive eating or restrictive dieting. I just, I don't think there's a place for that in society. I, I just don't. I agree 100%. Yes. But at times you might have to remove foods that your body doesn't like. It's not that, uh, it's not that you're doing it from a vanity standpoint. It's because it's affecting your health standpoint. And so with Hashimoto's, so if you have an autoimmune condition, you are three times more likely to develop a second or a third autoimmune condition. Wow. By and large in Hashimoto's clients, celiac disease is the second one that comes along because when you have Hashimoto's, people with Hashimoto's tend to have very high, um, very high reaction to gliadin, which is the protein and gluten. And so their body reacts very strongly or their immune system reacts very strongly to, to gliadin. And so when your immune system reacts to gliadin, um, it has, it, it kind of breaks it down in the body to something called transglutaminase. And so since your body's reacting to the gliadin, which is then transglutaminase, it's an enzyme um, 
your thyroid has a ton of transglutaminase inside the thyroid. So your, your immune system has, it, it reacts to the gliadin and says, oh, I don't like this. And so it starts attacking it, which is attacking the transglutaminase, which it attacks the transglutaminase everywhere, just not what's inside your digestive tract. And so as it's attacking your thyroid, it's throwing it off kilter. And that's how Hashimoto's results in hypothyroid. But it's these external and internal factors that can turn on uh, that switch. So really it's not an age thing. And personally, I think that's a little weird that a physician would just put them on thyroid medication just because they turned 40. Um, I think that there's definitely ways that you can prevent things like that. You know, if the thyroid is tanking, you can certainly um, help the thyroid to function the way that it should again. It's not like, oh, it's tanking. It just kind of happens. Uh, There's things that you can do to help repair the thyroid so it can, you know, be as healthy as it needs to be, just like your liver and just like your digestive tract and just like your heart. You know, you can do all these health-related things to make these organs function the way that they should thyroid is no different. It's just, we've accepted that, oh, it's hypothyroidism. It happens in a lot of women, especially women, you know, North of 40. And so, oh, we'll just put them on some Synthroid or some Levothyroxine or Armour or NP thyroid or whatever it is they put them on. Um, but I think just, you know, willy nilly putting somebody on medication just because without any testing is, is a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. And that the whole idea that, um, aging is a disease process, you know, like it doesn't actually have to, I mean, th- sure things change, but um, it doesn't have to be. So yeah, I mean, that I think that that's probably reassuring for women out there who are, are trying to figure out exactly, you know, uh, probably their own health and, and what questions to even ask of their doctor, or like you said, to self-advocate. So you've hinted a little bit that this could be healed or placed in remission. So what, what would that look like? So putting your Hashimoto's into remission or recovery is 100% doable. You can bring your antibodies back down to a normal level so that you don't have to deal with these symptoms that you're dealing with. Uh, One of the biggest ones is fatigue. You know, it's the fatigue is so bad that you feel like you just can't function on a day-to-day basis. You need multiple naps to get through a day. It affects your brain function. You have serious brain fog. You feel like you can't make decisions, you can't remember things, you have to write everything down. Uh, and it's really um, disheartening to, to deal with this level of fatigue and how it affects the body. But you can absolutely make those symptoms going away by healing the body, repairing the thyroid and putting the Hashimoto's into remission. That process looks completely different um, from one person to the next but it really comes down to isolating your food triggers, knowing what those triggers are, removing them, repairing the digestive tract, basically altering your lifestyle to be something that's um, very healthy, but very intrinsic to yourself. So understanding what you need to be healthy for you and not what you think that you need to be healthy based on what society tells you, like being a specific Uh, pant size or eating salads every day because you might actually react to salads. Um, So it really comes down to finding your food triggers and what your immune system is attacking from those foods and getting it to calm itself down and function the way that it should. 
And I imagine, um, like you talked about some external stressors too. So stress reduction would probably be massive. Yeah. So that would be part of, you know, the kind of whole lifestyle. Uh, It's really common uh, for women to put everything and everybody above what you need, especially, you know, if you're a wife or a mother. Um, And even if you're neither and you just have a really awesome job that you love so much, it's really common that we put these other things above our own internal needs. But you can't take care of these things and function at the level that you want to do or that other people need you to without putting yourself first. And by putting yourself first, it's not selfish. It's making sure that you're healthy enough to be there to support the people that you love or the job that you love. And so stressors are never going to go away. They are always going to be there. You can't sell your kids. You can't just go move to an island. You got to make money because, you know, that's what makes the world go around. But you can learn stress management and you can learn it in a way that fits inside your lifestyle. You don't have to go off to, um, you know, a, a trip where you meditate for hours and hours and hours a day, and then you come back and you have to find three to four hours a day to meditate. It's not like that. There are, I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's awesome. I don't have the attention span to do that. <laughs> yeah. But there are definitely things that you can do to help reduce stress outside so that the the stress is reduced on the inside because stress affects your adrenal glands, it affects your liver, it affects your metabolism, it affects your ability to release and utilize insulin in your body so that you can break down carbohydrates that you're consuming. Stress can create inflammation in the digestive tract. So there's kind of a whole lot, a whole lot of things that go into the, the recreating a lifestyle that functions for somebody with Hashimoto's. It's not just, you know, eat more vegetables and drink more water and exercise more. It's actually people with Hashimoto's. I tend to tell them to exercise less because stress is a stress, whether it's a good stress or a bad stress. If you've got an overly stressed body, it doesn't matter if, you know, it's, it's running or, you know, running from a bear, it's still a stress. (laughs) That's right. And I love how individualized you're, you're making this because like you said, what works for one person wouldn't work for another. And, and your stress is not my stress. And the way you cope with your stress is not the way I cope with my stress. So um, yeah, you're really taking a very personalized uh, view here for people. Um, And that's important for women anyway, like you said, not to just you know, Dr. Google, the new diet that's out there and, and jump aboard. So I appreciate that so much. Um, You talked about how gluten can be something that triggers Hashimoto's and then food sensitivities in general. So I'm guessing this is another case of individualization. Um, If you could talk a little bit about that and, and how it links to mood, because we do talk a lot about food and mood here. And I imagine that this fatigue and I mean, just feeling bad must influence mood, right? Yeah. So Hashimoto's um, clients are really susceptible to depression and anxiety. Um, And a lot of that comes from the foods that they're consuming. So food sensitivities are really individualized. I know that testing is on the rise and you can order these at-home test kits to figure out what you're sensitive to but I don't know that they're the best avenue to go. I really think that doing the hard work, and it is hard, but doing the hard work to find out 
what your specific triggers are is going to serve you so much more than taking a test and removing 37 foods that this test tells you your body doesn't like. Oh gosh. Yes. Yeah. You come back to restrictive eating, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And and so just as a side note, a lot of people push the autoimmune protocol for people with Hashimoto's and as a whole, I think it's a really great diet, but I think it is insanely restrictive. And especially if you have a history of disordered eating and by disordered eating, I mean that you are a chronic dieter. You have a new diet that you're starting every Monday. You go to foods for, uh, to feel better. So maybe you're eating because you're sad or eating because you're stressed or eating because you're bored. Um, and you, in your mind, tell yourself, well, I'm starting a diet, so I cannot have these foods ever again, or I'm never going to drink soda, or I'm never going to have chocolate. Um, so we have kind of these disordered thoughts around food. And if you have that sort of history, which a lot of women do, uh, myself included, I used to be a chronic dieter. So, I, you know, there's not a whole lot of people that are excluded from that. Um doing something like the autoimmune protocol or keto or the carnivore diet. I hear both of those or all three of those when we talk about Hashimoto's and it's just, they're insanely restrictive and you can get the exact same benefits without having to do something so restrictive, but you do have to put in the work of finding what your food triggers are. Um, Your food triggers are going to be different than anybody else's. So no two Hashimoto's clients or patients are alike in what foods that they react to. I have seen some that react very strongly with coffee. And then I've seen others that have no issues with caffeine whatsoever. They can drink coffee all the time and have no immune response to it whatsoever. It doesn't exacerbate their symptoms. Um, The same thing with gluten. Most people react to gluten that have Hashimoto's, but I have seen a a small handful that have no issues with, with gluten. Wow. Dairy, eggs. I mean, the list goes on, but really doing the work to find out what your specific triggers are is going to serve you so much better and for so much longer than running out and taking uh, the next greatest food sensitivity test out there. And we love to talk about absolutes in the nutrition world, right? So, and especially the media likes to take, <laughs> take studies and run with the absolutes. So that, yeah, there's such an important point. Yeah. Um, so bring me around to iodine because I feel like we hear iodine linked to thyroid all the time. Um, and then a little bit beyond that, as far as practical things, um, iodized salt related to Hashimoto's, you know, so, so what's going on here? Is it something to avoid? Is it even an issue? So that's another thing that's going to be really individualized. Um, I love it. <laughs> it. It's a hard thing because, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, even 70 or 80 years ago, we used to have iodine deficiency that kind of ran, uh, was rampant. Um, iodized, they started uh, realizing that iodine was something that we needed, but we could only get through diet. But a lot of people don't really like to go out and consume seaweed. And so, which is like a good place to really get some iodine. And so they started creating iodized salt where they add some iodine to the salt. And then we go through this period where salt's the devil, let's pull it out of the diet. And, um, but 
I want to say sometime around the 60s or 70s, and, and I don't recall, so if, if that time frame is off, don't come at me with your cleaver. Um, <laughs> it could, we started to put iodine into cosmetics, and we did this as a way to act as an antimicrobial when we're putting these cosmetics on our, on our skin, whether that was in lotions or foundations or powders and things like that. And so then we kind of got in this period where everybody had an insane amount of iodine in their body. And so we were in iodine excess. And so now we've kind of come full circle to where we don't really have so much iodine in our, our skin products that we're putting on and more people are consuming sea salt or pink Himalayan salt versus the iodized salt. And so some people truly can have an iodine deficiency and do need a little bit of iodine for, for their thyroid. And then there's some people that have too much iodine. And so it's really hit or miss. You can add some iodine into your diet and you might feel really good initially, but then crash. That's a good indication that uh, iodine is probably not your friend, but if you add iodine in and things go well for a very long period of time, then you probably needed a little bit of iodine for you. It's just, it's just one of those things that isn't an absolute, like you had said, you know, it's, yeah. it's not across the board for everybody. And it's, it's interesting. Iodine is, is one of those strange minerals where like the amount we need versus the amount that's too much are really, really close together. So yeah. I think figuring that out along with something like Hashimoto's could be really challenging. Yeah. Um, so on an individual basis, you kind of, do you have people try out, you know, or how do you feel on this salt without iodine versus this salt with iodine? Or is it not even that, that clear cut? Yeah, it's really not that clear cut. I tend to focus on the other nutrients that we need for our thyroid and really focus on the gut healing aspect of Hashimoto's um, before we get into the iodine. And some people do insanely good without ever doing any type of iodine. And some people just really need it in their lives. Um, iodine is kind of weird in that it can increase your thyroid peroxidase in, um, in the body. And so the more TPO we have, the more TPO that we attack because, um, one of the, one of the antibodies is thyroid peroxidase antibodies. And so Hashimoto's likes to attack it. And so for some iodine can increase your TPO. And so that increases your antibodies and makes your Hashimoto's worse. Um, and then for some, it just, it's not an issue. Wow. Wow. So, so a quick rundown, cause you mentioned other nutrients, what other nutrients are important for Hashimoto? Sure. So vitamin D is really, really important. And actually vitamin D is important for the population as a whole. Most people don't have enough vitamin D in their body. Um, and so much of our internal metabolic processes require vitamin D. Um, but vitamin D is a really big one for the thyroid, uh, selenium, zinc, magnesium. Those are really, um, really important as well. Um, actually I would say those are probably the bigger ones, D magnesium, zinc, and selenium. There are some peripheral ones that come into play, but those are the ones that I see most people need often. We're not getting enough magnesium in our diet. We use it in so much, um, in so many enzymatic reactions, every time we create energy, we're using magnesium. Same thing with zinc. Zinc, we use it in over 200 enzymatic reactions in the body. And when we are stressed, we burn through zinc like nobody's business. And if you think about not just the external stress that we have, 
But if you've got a disease happening and brewing in your body, your body is stressed. And so it's using that zinc up very, very quickly, probably more so than what you're taking in. Um, so zinc is really important. Selenium, selenium is actually one of the easier ones to get, but most people just don't consume enough selenium through their diet, whether that's through vegetables or legumes. Um, but selenium, you can actually get all the selenium you need in two to three Brazil nuts a day. I don't know how many people like Brazil nuts, um, but two to three Brazil nuts a day will actually get you all the selenium you need for a healthy thyroid. That's, that's a pretty, pretty easy fix. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and talking about these minerals and gut health, obviously, you know, not just running out and taking the minerals, but there needs to be some gut health protocol, some, some effort there so that you're actually absorbing what you're putting into your body. Right. Absolutely. Because, yeah. uh, and it, and it's kind of a personal pet peeve and I see, you know, in forums and things like that, where people are just saying, Oh, take this supplement or take this supplement or do this. And nobody really knows why they're doing any of that. They're just doing it because somebody said so somewhere along the way. And I think understanding why you're doing certain things and what the purpose behind it is, is really important to your healing process. You shouldn't just be doing things because you read it on a blog. You should fully understand why you're taking a supplement or why you're trying something out. I could have you preach on that for, we could make a whole other episode about that. I just had that conversation with a colleague of ours. <laughs> so um, what labs are important for somebody to keep track if they have Hashimoto's? So if you have Hashimoto's, uh, pulling your thyroid, uh, your thyroid peroxidase antibodies and your thyroid globulin antibodies, and those are abbreviated as TPOAB and TGAB. Those are the two primary antibodies that they'll actually pull to diagnose you with Hashimoto's. Um, sometimes once they diagnose you, they'll never pull those labs again. And I think it's really important that you keep tabs on those labs because people will notice that as they're feeling worse, their antibodies are increasing. And as they're feeling better, their antibodies are decreasing. Um, and so I think that those are really important to keep tabs on. The standard thyroid labs, so TSH, free T4, free T3, and reverse T3 are really important. Reverse T3 is very, very important because it acts like T3, it can bind to T3 receptors, but it's completely inactive. It, doesn't get utilized like T3 at all. It just, it's kind of a dead, a dead T3 basically, but it can bind to those receptors. And so it tells your thyroid, we're doing good on T3, don't pump out anymore. But in reality, it's a dead T3, it's doing nothing for you. So keeping tabs on your reverse T3 is important as well. Wow, so much more than just TSH. The Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. So as we wrap up here, um, what are two action steps that you could give for somebody who maybe suspects they have Hashi's? Sure. So the first thing I would say that for anybody listening, if you have been diagnosed hypothyroid and you've never had your antibodies tested, 
definitely ask to get your, your antibodies done. Um, show the research to your physician if they don't believe you. It's 100% covered by insurance. They, you know, so if they try to tell you like, oh, I can't you know, advocate to insurance to have that because if you're tired, you absolutely can. Um, so always have your antibodies checked if you're newly diagnosed with hypothyroid because that'll give you an idea of where you need to start as far as healing your body. But the two biggest things I would do is uh, one is I would get your vitamin D levels checked, get on a good vitamin D supplement because that is going to exacerbate your fatigue so much more. And two is I would start a food symptom log. So tracking the foods that you're consuming, not calories, not amounts. We're just looking at the foods, the types of foods that you're consuming and how you feel after those. So do you get sleepy? Do you notice that after you eat it, you're more irritable? Um, do you have more mucus production? Do your joints hurt a little bit more? Are you bloated? Do you have constipation, diarrhea? So kind of tracking what happens in your body after you consume certain foods. And you don't have to get crazy on this. Like I said, don't measure no amounts, no calories, anything like that. And sometimes you can just snap a photo of your food and then click edit on your phone and write down notes of how you felt. That way, when you're looking back through it, you can start to look at patterns that are developing based on the symptoms that you're having. And you might be able to say, oh, well, every time I eat peas and I love peas, I notice that uh, I get really irritable afterwards. Or every time I have corn, uh, I notice that I have diarrhea. And so that'll help you go, okay, well, maybe I should trial some time away from peas or take a little break from corn and see what happens. Love it. So practical and, and really easy to do. Sunny Brigham, it's been a pleasure having you here. Uh, where can our audience find out more about you and your work? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about the subject. Um, you can find me on Facebook. My business is Complete Health by Sunny Brigham. You can also find me on the internet. I do have a website. It's completehealthsb.com. Um, I have a Facebook group, Reversing Hashimoto's with Nutrition. You can just type that in Facebook and that'll come up. And we're talking all things of ways to harness your Hashimoto's with food. But those are the easiest ways to find me. Perfect. And we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of the Food Mood Files. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and sign up to our email list at thriveinsidenutrition.com so that you don't miss our next episode. I'm Emily Serta, challenging you to slow down and consider how the food you choose influences your mood. 